0: Well, hey, don't worry about going to uh, the movie Dumb and Dumber (laughs) 2. We have them right here. Hey, if you would, if you could pull out uh, this little invitation in your program, uh, that'd be great. Next week is Thanksgiving Sunday, and uh, we have much to be thankful for here at the JAR. And I want to encourage you to be able to invite one person uh, who's a friend next week I'm doing a particular teaching on faith and friendship and I know you don't want your friends to necessarily uh, go through life alone but you want them to meet maybe their greatest friend uh, which is Jesus himself and so I want to strongly encourage you to invite at least one of your friends a co-worker neighbor uh, uh, family member a friend uh, to come and to be a part of that I um, and our goal uh, next week is we want to try to have 400 people uh, in worship thanking God and for us learning how to do that. So invite your friend, and when you do, meet them out at uh, the front uh, in the lobby area so they are not alone. Also, next week, one thing I'm really uh, encouraged about is that we have 13 people getting baptized. So... Uh, Absolutely. So uh, invite your friend, and uh, we'll be able to do that. So you're going to do that, right? All right, let's pray, and then we'll uh, jump in. God, uh, we thank you so much for this day. Um, you've already filled us with your love. And now, God, we pray that you would uh, fill our hearts and our minds To change something in our life today that we would not be the same person that walked in here today as the person who's going to leave and not because of anything that I necessarily say but through your Holy Spirit that takes my words and translates them in such a way that it speaks to people at the deepest place where they can be changed and have a new heart I just pray this in your name. Amen. Several years ago, I woke up one morning and I had some heart palpitations. And uh, it kept going on and on. And uh, finally I told my wife, and she's like, you know, we really need to get that checked out. And so uh, we did, and we went to uh, have a stress test. Anyone have a stress test here before? Okay. Too many of you. Okay. Okay. Uh, But we had this stress test, and the uh, nurse took me from the one room to the procedure room, and then she introduced me to this demonic device (laughs) called a treadmill. And they asked me to step up on the treadmill, and they wanted me to start walking. And I started walking on this treadmill. I'm like, this is not a big deal. And I kept walking more and more, and, and uh, finally the doctor walked in and said, how are things going? I turned around like this. I started walking backwards. I'm like, you know what? If, if this is all we're doing today, you're going to be here all day long. And the doctor looked at me and said, well, it's going to start elevating here pretty soon, and, but you just keep walking. So I started walking, moved up a little bit. I'm thinking, no big deal, you know, this is no big deal. I run five to six miles, you know, two or three times a week, so this is no big deal. And all of a sudden, it starts elevating a little bit more, and I start getting a bead of sweat coming down my face, and I'm thinking... This is not walking anymore. And pretty soon it's like elevated more. And I'm going like this and I'm losing breath and my face is turning red and I'm perspiring. And the doctor comes in and he says this, which I thought was a great line. He uh, came in and he said, um, are you moderately tired or extremely tired? And I'm like, stop the machine, dude. You know, couldn't you tell? And so we got all that. They got all that material, uh, all the information from that. And he he came to me and uh, said, "We're going to read this. We'll let you know." And they had an abnormal reading. So with that, then they had a second test that they were going to use for me, uh, called a cardio And so then I went and I took that test. And thanks be to God, uh, there was nothing wrong with my heart. But uh, they kind of chalked it up to a lot of stress in my life, and that I needed to learn how to manage that a little bit better, and so that's why I've been working on the last few years. Now, folks, during this period of time, though, our family was really, really concerned about this, and this is why. My grandfather on my mom's side died of a heart attack. My grandmother on my dad's side died of a heart attack. My uncle... Uh, had open heart surgery multiple times, and both of my parents are on heart medication. And so we were really, really concerned about uh, just kind of the genetic effect of my heart. And so I remember this whole time, it was a scary time, and I remember praying to God when all of a sudden he said, Chris, would you be as concerned about your spiritual heart as you are your physical heart? And I was very, very convicted during that time in my life that I hadn't really done regular heart checks spiritually. And so I started doing that almost every single day. And when I refer to my spiritual heart, what I'm talking about is that kind of internal part of us, the the center of who we are, the part of us that is going to live for eternity. The Bible calls it the heart. It calls it the spirit, the soul. We know it's made of our mind, our emotions, our will. But it's our heart. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And we're going to focus on a particular scripture from Proverbs 4.23. Let's read this out loud together. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So everything we do flows from our heart. Jesus actually said some very similar words. Uh, this is what he said. Let's read this out loud together. For our out of the heart. Oh, let's say I do that first celebration too. Let's do it again. Uh, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, if you would, what I'd like you to do is to imagine this graphic of a t-shirt that'll come up. Is you. So this represents you and everything external what you do what you say uh, what your behavior is the way that you interact uh, with others is outside of that and everything that happens externally outside flows out of what your heart your heart And this leads us to our first big idea, and it's this. Everything in life flows out of what is hiding in your heart. Everything in life flows out of what is hiding in your heart. Now, in some ways, folks, this is kind of bad news, if you think about it. It means that even if you gained the wisdom of all the world, like if you got all the wisdom of the world, of what to do, of what not to do, you still wouldn't be wise unless your heart is transformed, it's changed. In fact, a lot of times, you won't even act as wisely as you know you should. And the question becomes, well, why is that? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, God comes to Jeremiah one day and he tells him, I want you to share this to the people. And this is what he said. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Now, this verse should catch your attention, folks, because basically God is saying that your heart is deceitful. My heart. Is deceitful. In fact, just so that we know that up front, let's say this phrase out loud together. My heart is deceitful. Some of you didn't say that as convictingly as others. You know, you don't want to believe it, but it's true. Your heart is deceitful. Now, I've been studying this all week, and this is what I've learned about Chris Bunch's heart. It's deceitful. It's just amazing to me how I can convince myself that I am other than who I really am. And many times, even though I know what the right thing to do is, guess what? I don't do it. I was thinking of a couple examples this week. When our two daughters, Jordan and Shiloh, were first born and they were infants, When I would be in the bed and all of a sudden I would hear one of them crying, I would look to see if Jen was awake first. And then if she woke up first and I'd go, I would snore. Now, just confession across the board. How many of you have ever done that before? You know, yeah, like some people are liars in this place too today, right? You're afraid. Or this experience happens to me. Sometimes I'm driving, and I look up, and I see that the light is yellow, but I think to myself, I'm in a hurry, and I'm more important than any of these other things, so I need to just get through it. And sometimes it's yellow, and then it turns to a different color. Yeah, orange, not... It turns red, and I just keep going. I know that's wrong, but sometimes, even though I know it, my heart deceives me. Folks, I do things that I don't want to do. Wise people know this. And because of this, the wisest people realize that the man behind the curtain Is your heart. And even though the heart can't be seen, it pulls the levers, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, the wizard behind who's pulling everything. That's our heart. Now, unwise people have this approach I've got a strong willpower. No matter what my heart says, I can get beyond it and do the right thing. Now, in some ways, they might be right. But what they fail to realize that is unless they have a transformed heart that looks like Jesus Christ, your best actions will undermine what lies beneath every single time. So for the rest of our time, what I want us to talk about is how do we get wiser? How do we take the wise path to a healthy heart? Because we all want a healthy heart, right? Right. A heart that is filled with love. A heart that's filled with joy and peace and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We want that kind of heart. Now the first step to this path to a healthy heart is to die to your non-ideal self. That you die to your non-ideal self. Those things in life that we consider in our life to be bad. This happens a lot when people first come to Christ. You spend the first few years of your journey and you're kind of like, you know what, there are some parts there that I know are bad. I need to change those. In fact, the Apostle Paul who uh, wrote over half of the New Testament. Early on in his life, though, he did some really bad things. In fact, he's, he killed Christians. I bet you know some Christians you'd like to kill, right? Yeah. But after he gave his life to Christ, he turned it all around, and one day he's speaking to a people of that are new to the faith, and this is what he says to them. He says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Don't be greedy. Put off lies, gossip, and dirty language. So, let's go back to the t-shirt again. The t-shirt represents you, and this represents your non-ideal self. Paul says it's things like this. Immorality, greed, lies, gossip, dirty language. Many other things in our heart you could add to this list that you don't like. We hate these parts of our life. And Jesus calls us to die to them every day and to follow him. And we get that. And that's the first part of the journey. But the most important part, I think, is not to die to the non-ideal self, but it is to die to the ideal self. And that leads us to the second step, which is uh, to a healthy heart, is this. To crucify... The ideal self, or those things that we pride ourselves in. You might say to crucify the idolized self, those things that I lift up as ideal for who I am. Now, the ideal self, or the idolized self, is that part of us that we take great pride in. We kind of, you know, with pride, kind of puff our chest out and go, This is who I am. These are the kind of things that I do. This is the person. That I am at my best. And this is our idolized kind of virtuous kind of image of ourself. This is a part of our heart that we idolize. And when people have this idolized self, it affects the way that they see other people. It affects the way that they feel toward other people. And this is the biggest thing, folks. It greatly affects your relationship with God. Now, let me explain this concept a little bit more by going back to our t-shirt. There's a non-ideal self, and then there's this idolized self. And you could describe your person in different ways. I'll just throw up a few of these myself. But an idolized self, you might say, hey, I'm hardworking, I'm smart, I'm a good person, I'm self-made, I'm caring, I'm independent. And you look at those things, I was made to do big things. Now, everyone's idolized self may be a little bit different. You may have different words that describe whatever it is that you value the most in yourself. But let me qualify uh, something here. The problem isn't that you are those things. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that you have begun to idolize those things in your life. It's those things that have become an idol in your heart, controlling the throne of your heart. You see, if this graphic was your idolized self, you will go to great lengths to try to keep those things known to everybody else around you. You want to put on that image. And you do it for yourself and you do it for the rest of the world. Now, one of the ways that you know this person has become an idol unto themselves is when you start validating those things and saying those things are really important and you start judging other people. In fact, the best way for you to know what your words are for your t-shirt, these are mine, but the best way for you to know that is how you judge other people. You pay attention to what you judge the most. For example, let's say, for instance, my idolized self says I'm a hardworking person. Then what you do is you judge those who are lazy. If you regularly find yourself judging ignorant people, it's because you really value your smartness. If you find yourself judging those who are immoral, you start idolizing the goodness in yourself. If you often find yourself judging dependent people, those kind of tagalongs, you probably start idolizing this self-made image of you. If you're caring, then you probably judge people who are insensitive. If you're independent, then you start judging people who are very needy. You get this? You see, the things we often look down upon on other people is what we hold up as the best image of ourselves. I mean, we actually need to see other people failing in the exact areas that we pride ourselves in so that it validates our idolized self. And we become judgmental people because of the attachment that we have with what we idolize. Now at this point I have a feeling that some of you are probably thinking, but Chris, like that is me. Like if I were to look at that left side, that's me. I'm hard working, I'm smart, I'm a good person. I have self-care uh, or I'm self-made. I care for people. I'm independent. Now, this is the point, folks. None of those things are bad things. It's just sometimes what happens is you overinflate those things in your life. And you make them so important to you that you create them to be an idol and you glorify those things rather than honoring and glorifying Christ. But when you're able to crucify the idolized self with Christ, then the person can use these qualities like hardworking, smart, good person, and so forth, in non-inflated ways, so that you point people to Jesus. That you say, within my life, I'm not going to make these an idol. I simply take these things and I direct people toward Christ. And when you do this, folks... When you're able to do this, it's the most liberating feeling there is. You're free. Jesus put it this way regarding the prideful, idolized person. He said, if any of you want to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. So you are to die... To your non-ideal self, and then you must also crucify your idolized self. And that means that you stop trying to make your identity what you think everybody else sees you as and what you idolize the most. In that person, that prideful thing, what you finally do is you say, I die to that and I close the casket. And then start living as a new person who finds my identity in being a loved son or a loved daughter of God. Because that's who you are. That is who you are at your core. Now, as some of you know, uh, my wife Jennifer is a physician. And uh, believe me, i married way, way up. You know, uh, looks, smarts, you name it. In fact, uh, Thanksgiving, our family will get together, and my dad usually will look around and go, boy, don't mess up, you know, (laughs) don't mess up. Well, the past 13 years, she's been in academic medicine, one of the most prestigious kind of roles in medicine, and she has trained a lot of doctors. In fact, uh, I went through this week to try to figure out how many doctors she's trained, both here in the U.S. and overseas as well. To help within their training, and it's that 200 doctors. And so she's done a lot of training. She's won all kinds of awards. There for a while, her picture was in the paper all the time. Made me sick. <laughs> I mean, it's like here I am, the pastor of the church, trying to do something for God, and you know, her picture's in the paper all the time. But, you know, people always come up and they're like, oh. You're Dr. Bunch's husband. That's who you are. I do have a name, you know. And um, she's recognized by a lot of physicians. But four months ago, after about a year of us praying and discerning, she felt called by God to lead this kind of high-level, prestigious physician and practice a different kind of medicine so that there would be better balance in her life and in her family. Now, you would think, then, that these last four months have been like a honeymoon for her. I mean, it's a lot less hours and uh, some time that she's never kind of had before. I mean, sometimes she'll go several days and, you know, to work one day and she'll be off for four, five, six, seven days in a row. I mean, just amazing time. But this is what's been so weird about these last four months is that it's been some of the hardest times of her whole practice. Now, why would that be? Why would it be so hard now that she's trying to do that? Because she was an adrenaline junkie. I bet some of you are like that too. You always got to be doing something. And so you put the pedal to the metal, and that's what she did. And this is what... So weird is that because of the idolized self, and and Jennifer would take on some of those as well, everyone looked to her and all of a sudden these last four months, some of these things have kind of been stripped away from this big group of people that elevated her up and kind of looked to her as being this idol. And these last four months have been hard because she's had to learn something different. And she's had to learn that God is teaching her that I want to strip all those things away. And it's been a real pruning kind of season in her life. God says, Jen, I don't want you to find your identity in those things. I don't want you to find your identity in the compliments of all your colleagues and the different awards. Because the idolized self, folks, is not who my wife is at the core of who she is. But at her core is being a child of God. And folks, that's why each one of you at your core, it is not who you do or what you do or what you say or where you go or how much you work. It is that you are a child of God. And it's not something that Bunch just says, but in 1 John 3, 1, it says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what's it say? Children of God. And then it says, That's what you are. So the question today is, Is the treasure of being a loved child of God enough? Is the treasure of being an heir of the kingdom of God enough for you? And if it is, would you be willing to give up all other kinds of treasures in your life just for that treasure, even if it meant giving up the idol of you? Well, if you go down this path, and it's one that I've been trying to go down the last few years in my own life, it's not easy. Because every morning you wake up and you have to die to that self. And you do it again and again and again. But it's essential, folks, if you want a transformed heart, a heart that looks like Christ. So, What's the next step to a healthy heart? The next step is to process your emotions. You've got to process your emotions. Now, it might be a different emotion for any person, but for me, the one emotion that I've had to struggle with the most throughout my life is anger. And in my 20s, um, I really had a hard time processing because a lot of times what would happen is I would like shake, get all angry and shake up and shake up and shake it up and shake it up and then, you know, I shake it up enough and then all of a sudden i got to release it somehow and, and then it just spews. You know what I mean? It spews out all over the place. And that's what I am. I'm a, I'm a spewer. Any other spewers here? Okay. I'm sure there are some wives that are hitting husbands right now. Raise your hand. You see, and there's two types of people. There are spewers and then there are stuffers. And what's weird is that often when you marry someone, a spewer marries a stuffer. Okay. Well, I'm not asking for a confession. I mean, it's good for the soul, I guess, but. And if this is you, what happens is you just bottle up all these emotions and you want to process them, but you can't. So they just get pent up in here and it becomes a lot of work, doesn't it? To keep the lid on, to like not let it flow out. I heard someone say one time, it's kind of like taking a beach ball. And trying to put it underneath the water. You ever do that before? You're trying to put it underneath, and you leave it underneath, and what happens? It slips up. And you can't do that. Sometimes it slips out sideways, like anger. Sometimes it slips out with comments or jabs. Sometimes it's cynicism or negativity. And the truth is, all of us are capable of pushing all of this emotions down. Anyone can do that. There are a lot of things that we can do to just push those emotions down. Now here's a wake-up call. Maybe some of you didn't know this. But there are a lot of things in life that you want that you're not going to get. Woo! We tell it to our kids all the time, right? My daughter last night, we told her that we were going to the Colts game tonight. And she's going through this weird stage right now where she doesn't want mom and dad to leave. And she starts crying and you know, oh, daddy, mommy, it's a school night if you're not there. Da, da, da. I was like, you better get in that bed. Because <laughs> we're going to the Colts game, your mom and I, and you'll be in your bed, you know. But as kids, every child wishes... That they would be loved perfectly and unconditionally by their parents. But you know what? It's unrealistic. And yet, it doesn't change the fact, though, that at a very early age, I bet every single one of us here, we want that. As kids, we wanted to hear, I love you, or I'm proud of you, from our moms and dads. But for very few people, folks, very few people ever hear those words in the way that they really wanted to hear them. We want to be respected. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked. I can list a thousand things that are important to us that we want, but we don't get. Or that sometimes is taken away from us. And the point is this. We experience a ton of loss in this fallen world. Either by harmful things that happened to us, or good things that we really, really wanted, but we just didn't get. I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but losses, pain, disappointments, they're going to happen to you. They're going to happen to me. The point becomes, when they happen, how do we learn to become more like David, Solomon's dad, who wrote Proverbs, who David himself wrote all of Psalms. If you don't know who David is, you should read Psalms sometimes. He wrote most of them. And he's very, very open about how he feels. David doesn't uh, stuff things down. He doesn't ignore things. He doesn't say a whole bunch of Christian nicety, nice stuff all over the place. He just gets really r- real with God. And I'm convinced that David wrote so honestly before God because he knew that God would not leave him. I was reading this week, there's a a time in which David is really upset with his enemies. And this is what he says, Oh God, would you take the heads of the children of my enemies and slam them against the rocks? Do it, God. Look, whoo! And that guy was like the greatest king of the Old Testament. He's the only person that is given the title, a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Why? Because this is what David learned that you and I often don't learn. And this is it. That God would rather hear from you every single day, regardless of what you're going through, whether it's anger or any other emotion, than to walk through your days and you choose not to connect with Him. And what you do is you just take it and you shove it down. And what happens is, folks, once you bottle enough of this up, you know what happens? Eventually, you don't spew anymore. You just put it on the shelf. You say, there's so much negativity there, I could never handle it, and you walk away. And then what do we do to try to make ourselves feel better about those things? We get busy. We put a whole bunch of stuff in our life. We drink. We watch tons of TV. We have sex with strangers. We lie. We gossip. We eat. We starve ourselves. We look at porn. We do whatever it takes to avoid feeling those bad feelings. In fact, much of life is just one giant exercise in pain avoidance. We'll do anything to avoid the pain. And what happens is we just kind of get to this surfacey existence because deep down is a bunch of stuff that you and I really don't want to deal with. But there is a better way. David learned the way. You know what the way is? Grieving. You grieve. We have to grieve the pains, the losses, the hurts, the disappointments of life. That's why no one's ever excited about going to a funeral. Why? Because we don't want to grieve. And people come up and they say some of the dumbest things sometimes. Like, oh, it's going to be a lot better. Don't worry. What do you mean? I just lost my wife of 57 years. It ain't going to get any worse. And the reason is, is because we don't know how to grieve. As a part of the grieving process, anger is helpful as long as you're not hurting yourself or someone else. As I've said many times before... Anger is not a sin. Jesus got angry. David got really angry at God at times. It's almost like he's looking at God, but he's not waving with all five fingers, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? He's just like he's mad at God. But again, he realized that to connect with Him was more important than not to do that. So, whether you're angry or you're depressed or you're afraid, God says, Come to me anyway so we can process your emotions. Psalm chapter 5, verse 1. David says this, Lord, listen to my words. Understand my sadness. Folks, sadness is not a bad thing. And yet somehow, Christians get off thinking that I can't ever be sad. I need to be happy. I need to have the happy Christian smile. All of life is great. Hallelujah. My goat died. Oh, great. (laughs) And what happens sometimes too is that the reason why we don't want to be sad is because if you're sad, you're not walking with God as closely as you should. Folks, that's not true. It's not biblical. Not biblical at all. David felt sadness, he processed it. Sadness doesn't mean depression, it's just sadness, it's tears. God created tear ducts so that you could cry. And if you never cry, if you never get to this point, if you never let things go, then you will never have God fill the space that was lost. Let me say that again. If you don't release, if you don't let go... God can never fill back up that space that is from Him. And at this point, you're just kind of holding the pain of the loss inside you, and that's not wise. It's not wise to get all upset or angry or to have pain and then just to walk away. It's not wise. There's a wiser way to process your emotions. Now, Before I leave from this idea of processing our emotions, I want to talk to you about something that everyone thinks is great and everyone should do it, but it's the hardest thing for you and I to do. And it's called forgiveness. When you don't process your losses, when I don't process my losses, we can't truly forgive. And when you can't forgive, you can't release the pain. You know, the fact is, folks, the world is filled with broken relationships. Have any of you ever had a broken relationship in your life? Raise your hand, okay? Yeah. And any of you that didn't raise your hand, what do we call them? Liars. Liars. exactly. Because everybody has had a broken relationship. I don't want you to raise your hand right now, but I have a feeling that some of you right now, if we looked at your heart, there's a broken relationship. The world's filled with them. You're going to have them in life. You're going to get hurt by people about what they say about you, what they think about you, what they've done to you, emotionally, verbally, physically, sexually, financially. And like it or not, you're going to be hurt by these things. And many of you carry wounds. Many of you carry wounds from your past, from a parent or a child or an ex-spouse or a friend. But somebody in your life wounded you deeply and some of you, you can picture that person right now. You're like, I know who it is. And I just want to say, as your pastor, is someone who cares about you, who loves you, who wants what's best for you. If you want God's best in your life, if you want wisdom, you've got to learn to let that go. You've got to let the past hurts go. And the remedy... For all of your painful memories, folks, everyone is forgiveness. I hate to say it, but there's no other option. Nothing else can set you free from the past except forgiveness. You offer it, you ask it, you accept it. Nothing else works. If you want to get on with life, if you want your life to count, if you want to experience joy in your life, you're going to have to let go of The past hurts. Now, the problem is is that sometimes people don't understand forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean you forget the pain or what the person did to you. And it also doesn't mean that you have to fully trust that person at the same level as you did before. Rather, it means that as a follower of Jesus Christ, it requires you to forgive. In fact, did you know this? Jesus said these words. If you don't forgive others, God can't forgive you. So I want to have all the forgiveness from God that I can, so I need to forgive the people around me. And when you forgive, this is what happens. You think the other person is chained. They're not chained. You're chained. And when you forgive, the chains of bitterness and resentment are broken apart and you get to leave free in the core of who God created you to be. So the path to a wise, healthy heart is you have to die to the non-ideal self. We crucify our idolized self. We process our emotions. And one last thing is to pursue the kingdom of God. That we choose to pursue the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. Jesus said that. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That you turn to God first for help. And to fill your life with his desires. To serve him, to obey him, to walk in the ways of Jesus. And this is what Jesus promises. He says that if you seek first the kingdom of God, it goes on to say that he promises to provide every one of your needs. If you seek him first even, all the way up to and through eternity. Because as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has planted eternity in the human heart. In other words, folks, you were created. Before you were ever created, God knew that you would spend eternity with Him. In other words, you were created to long for the things of eternity. Deep down in our hearts, That's what we long for. We were made for the person of God, the presence of God. We were made for the love of God, the joy of God, the peace of being right with Him. We were created to long for the things of heaven, for the purity of the world. Where everything is made right, everything is made just, everything is taken care of. Deep inside of us, we have our hearts that long for what eternity provides and you want eternity provides heaven itself where there's no more tears there's no more pain but until that day comes Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God right here on earth allowing your hearts to be set on the things of God the problem is is that for many of us we settle ...for a lesser desire. And we rarely touch base with the deepest parts of our heart. But if we wanted to do that, how would we do that? Well, one thing is what you're doing right now. You chose to come to church. However you got here, you chose it. And I have a feeling that when you leave from this place your heart will be a little bit different and you'll be a little bit more in touch with the desire of the things of God than if you would have slept in or if you would have done tons of other things today. Not that they would have been bad things, but you would not have had the same presence of God. When you read the Bible and you reflect on it, all of a sudden then it speaks to you. And it opens you up and you can... Get a Bible. If you need a reading plan, we have it at the resource table. When you pray, I have a feeling that you're reawakened to the things of God. You have a healthy heart. And, folks, this is what happens. The reason I want you to do those things is because when you do them, all of a sudden you get perspective. And all the circumstances in your life that you feel like are so out of control, you get control because you have perspective. You know, people often make the mistake of thinking that Christianity is about putting down or cutting away our desires. Christianity is about living out not just our desires, but the deepest desire that any of us could have in this world, which is God that is placed in our hearts, the things of eternity, his person, his presence. That's how God created you to be. This past week, I was talking to a guy that attends here named Norm, and uh, two times, he almost died because of the heart condition that he has. He has a real rare, kind of dangerous heart rhythm, and for a couple of years, uh, they weren't really sure what to do, and things were really touchy, and he would, he would actually pass out sometimes, and sometimes uh, he would just have no energy whatsoever. Well, several months ago, he got a pacemaker put in. And then when this pacemaker came in, the rhythm of his heart got really, really healthy. And he shared with me this week how that when that happened, all of a sudden he started having energy like he never had before. And so my question for you this morning is how is the rhythm of your heart, of your spiritual heart? Are you connecting regularly on Sunday? Is Bible reading and prayer a part of that? Are you connecting in a small group? Are you serving in some way? Because this is what I know about my heart. When those things aren't happening in a regular way, I kind of drift away and I know I'm heading towards trouble. And I don't quite hear God the way that I want to hear Him. So how healthy is your heart these days? Is your heart congested with a bunch of competing desires? Is it beating to the demands of the idealized person rather than Christ alone? Is it kind of flatlined because the reality is you just keep on shaking the bottle and not processing any of your emotions? Or maybe you're there today and you're like, I have a vital heart. And I guarantee that if you do, the reason is, is because you are dead to yourself and you are alive to God. And the physical, emotional, spiritual parts of your being is whole. Folks, that's the kind of heart that God wants to give to everybody, to every single person. Because everything you do, folks, flows from your heart. If you would, I'd like you to stand for our uh, closing prayer. And just like we've done with uh, all of these in our uh, series, uh, we're going to close with a benediction, which is just kind of a a closing prayer for all of us. And uh, I've had a person each time kind of come up and and read this. And I'd like our prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, our prayer team would love to pray with you. So uh, you can come on up. And uh, the person that will be leading us uh, today is Bonnie Wynn. And so Bonnie's going to come up here. Let's give Bonnie a hand as she comes up. Um, Bonnie is an incredible person and a great leader. And uh, Operation Shop that uh, we've been doing the last couple of months where there are people who uh, are in need of some extra food at the end of the month and those who can provide it. Uh, Bonnie and her team uh, that she leads, the community care team, have kind of put that together. And so she's going to kind of lead us uh, in our benediction, and we'll go from there. So thanks, Bonnie. Good
1: morning. As we reflect on being wiser with our words, let us declare this benediction together as a church in one strong voice. Please join me. Here we stand, united by the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We confess that we have depended on our own insights and hope that that would be enough. God, in this moment, help us put that way of thinking to rest. Guide our community as we practice what has been instilled in us today. We ask for your divine wisdom to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are new, please stop by Guest Connections. Uh, We have a gift for you. Also, we are wrapping Operation Shop or Operation Christmas Child packing today. Um, If anybody can join us for a few minutes to do that in the exercise room. Have a great week and know that you're loved in this place.